you have your Bibles with you this morning, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Looking at verses 1 through 13 this morning, the whole chapter basically. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. You know, we value our freedom, especially here as Americans, we value our freedom very much. Uh, but when it comes to our freedom, uh, should we cling to our freedom at all costs, even when it is uh, detrimental to someone else? Uh, well, the answer there is no. There's times that we need to limit our freedom. Uh, for instance, right now, right? Right now we are here and we're, uh, most of us are wearing masks. And that, you know, when we come into the sanctuary, we ask everybody to wear your mask and and people ask you as you go into the store to wear your mask, and they're uncomfortable, they're hot, and they're annoying. I know that. Uh, we would rather get rid of them. Uh, and it kind of infringes on our right not to wear a mask. But to not wear a mask, you see, puts other people in danger. That mask you're wearing is not for your benefit, as we talked about last week. It's for your neighbor's benefit. Because if you happen to have corona and don't know it, well, you can pass it on to someone else who doesn't. And uh, even though you may not have the severe symptoms, they may develop severe symptoms. And, and what would you feel like if they died because you gave them the corona because you refused to wear a mask? I mean, so we allow our freedom to be limited for the sake of others, for the benefit of others. When it comes to our Christian freedom, our Christian liberty, we have the same approach. We should have the same approach. Uh, there are things in life that are, 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 are within our rights as a Christian, our Christian liberty to do, but we always have to ask that question. If me participating in this, if me doing something, doing this, is, is it going to hinder someone else? Is it going to cause someone else to stumble and fall into sin? We need to ask that question. And if the answer is yes, it's going to harm someone else, then we must say, well, let me limit my freedom. And that's what Paul says here today. That's what he's talking about here in chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians. There's an issue going on in the church. And he is having to address this issue. It has to do with Christian liberty what we have a right to do as a Christian. Uh, but it's harming other people, and Paul's having to address this issue. When we think about Christian liberty, Christian liberty must be governed by two things, knowledge and love. When we think about our Christian liberty, our Christian liberty must be governed by both knowledge and love. Not just knowledge. It's not just about knowing that we, we have the right to do that, but it also must be governed by love. So uh, we see there's two parts to this principle, and I want to look at those two parts today. While we should always value our Christian liberty, I want us to learn to govern that liberty with knowledge and love today. So just to remind you where we are here, uh, we make a shift in the book of 1 Corinthians today, so we're shifting away from the topic of sex and all that, and I know a lot of you are saying, yay, we 
we've been on that a while, so uh, we're moving on, and we're getting to other topics. My wife says, amen. Uh, so we are shifting topics here. He's been talking about, uh, of course, he started out talking about uh, factionalism within the church, divisions within the church. He addressed that issue that was going on. He talked about sexual immorality, which then led to a discussion about marriage and divorce and singleness and all of these issues. But now he's shifting to this discussion about idolatry, idolatry. And idolatry was a big thing in Corinth, of course. They, they weren't in a society like ours. ours we, we, you're either kind of uh, almost Christian or secular in our society. Uh, we're seeing more Muslims and Buddhists and, and that sort of thing, other religions uh, arising. But historically, America has been more focused. You're either Christian are you are secular? Uh, that tends to, tend to, tends to have been or has been in the past uh, the two basic categories with just a few extras. Uh, but in Corinth, there were all kinds of gods to worship, and Christianity was the minority. So you had all of these temples there in Corinth, and, and many of the people who are in this Corinthian church, they were pagans. They were pagans before they were converted to, to Christianity. There's a few Jews who are in this church, but for the most part, it seems that uh, a lot of the Christians were former pagans, Gentiles, who are now coming to Christ. And so that means that a lot of the, the Christians there, they still have a lot of friends and family who are pagans. And in that time, they would often, the, the pagans would often go to the temple temple of their god artemis or zeus or whoever they would go to that temple and they would throw parties they would have weddings they would have birthday parties and that sort of thing in the temple i mean we, we still do that in the church don't we uh, sometimes we come to church and we throw a party down in the family life center uh, we have weddings here and we celebrate marriage in the church well they did that in their pagan temples as well and so you had some of these Christians who, their family members, they were inviting them to come to these celebrations in their pagan temples. And part of that celebration would be they would offer a sacrifice up to this deity, this God, and then they would feast off of the meat that, of that sacrifice. So the question is arising, should we go to that party? Should we go celebrate uh, uh, Cousin Joe's uh, wedding in, in the pagan temple and, and join in the celebration and eat the meat that was offered to this other god, this pagan god. Another issue that was taking place is that uh, they were uh, the priests of these other temples, these, these temples of these idols, they would take some of the meat. That was kind of part of their livelihood. When you made a sacrifice in the temple, uh, the priest got a cut of the meat, and, and he would take that meat, and he would take it out into the market, and he would sell it. Now you typically knew, hey, that's the priest of Artemis, and he's selling meat that was sacrificed to Artemis. So the question was, was uh, second question to Christians, should we buy that meat? We know it's been offered as a sacrifice to Artemis. Should we buy that meat? So you have these two questions that are going on arising in the church, and there are some of the more mature Christians who are solid in their faith, and, oh, sure, we can eat that meat. Yeah, we can eat that meat. I mean, it's just meat. There's no other God but God. 
So what does it matter if, if some other person sacrificed this meat to another God? It's just meat so we can have the meat. But then you had other Christians who were saying, no, I don't think we should eat the meat. It's been sacrificed to another God, and, and that just would defile us. So we're not going to eat the meat. And so there was, again, this division in the church over, should we eat meat or not eat the meat? And so now Paul is addressing that. And, of course, this has to do centrally with Christian liberty. Do we have the right to eat the meat or not to eat the meat? And so uh, that's kind of the issue there, and we see this principle, Christian liberty must be governed by knowledge and love arising from this issue. So if you found your place there in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, please stand with me in reverence to the reading of God's holy word. Now concerning food offered to idols. We know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there are, for although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we <clears throat> do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food, food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience, when it, uh, when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Amen. May the Lord add blessing to the reading of his holy, inspired, and inerrant word. And may he write his eternal truth on all our hearts. And you may be seated. So in the text, we, we see that liberty is the central issue here in verse 9. Verse 9 is the imperative, the, the, the word of command here that Paul 
is giving to the Corinthian church, but take care that this right of yours, this liberty of yours, does not somehow somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. That's the key commandment that we need to, to look at. So it's about Christian liberty. It's about what you have right to do as a Christian and how that liberty should be governed. Now as we look at that, uh, we see here the first uh, part of that principle to let our Christian liberty be governed by knowledge and love. The first part of that is this. Christian liberty must be governed by knowledge. It must be governed by knowledge. Uh, Paul makes that clear in the first part of this text. Uh, look what he says here, the first three verses. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess. Now this is a quote from the Corinthian church. We know that all of us possess knowledge. That's what they're saying. All of us possess knowledge. This knowledge, Paul says, this knowledge of yours, puffs up. It puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagine that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Now, when Paul addresses this issue, the, the, the Corinthians, they're saying, we all have knowledge. Right? Uh, they're talking about doctrinal knowledge. We are students of God's word. We've been listening to our preachers. We have this great knowledge. And because of this knowledge, we can go to the temple and eat whatever meat we want to eat. I mean, it's no big deal because there's only one God. We can go eat meat. This is a liberty of ours. And, and so they're demanding this, li this liberty based on this doctrinal knowledge. We know. We know. And Paul says here, this knowledge of yours, it puffs up. It puffs up. And, and see, that's the thing. Knowledge without love puffs up. It, it makes one proud of what they know. Uh, this, we, we see this in, even univer in the university, right? Uh, when you go to the university, it, you have four levels in college, right? Uh, you have freshmen, you have sophomore, and then the upperclassmen, junior and senior. Well, freshmen, you're, you're a moron, right? I mean, you know nothing, right? You, you're just ignorant. You're coming in. You have no knowledge. You're coming in. To, you're scared to death, and, and you won't say a word because you don't know anything. You're, just, you're a fresh man, a fresh person, you have no knowledge, and you know you have no knowledge. And, and so you're scared to death, and you come in, and you're not saying anything. You're, you're just there, and just let me take it in. Let me learn something and, and try to get through this. But then you become a sophomore. Now, that term sophomore has an interesting history. Uh, and if you're a sophomore, uh, sorry, but uh, this is just the, the way it works. This is just what it is. Uh, the term sophomore comes from the 1680s, way back then. And uh, it, of course, refers to a second-year student in university. And it literally means arguer. Arguer. You ever argued with a sophomore? Uh, their, their name is a, an arguer. And listen to this, uh, uh, the etymology of the word. 
the etymology of the word, this word comes from two Greek terms. The first one is sophos, which is wisdom, the Greek word for wisdom, sophos. And so there's wisdom. As a sophomore, a freshman, you knew nothing, right? You were ignorant. As a sophomore, there's some wisdom. It, you, you've had a year of knowledge. You've had a year of learning, right? And, and so you know something. Now, you've got some wisdom. So you have wisdom. But then the second part of the word, more, sophomore, comes from the Greek word moros, which means foolish or dull. It's the word from which we get moron. A sophomore is a moron with some wisdom. If you're a sophomore, we were all there, right? We were all there. We, we were all that uh, moron with some wisdom. But that's the way it is when you, when you get a little bit of knowledge. It puffs up. And, and so you see these sophomores, these early on in college, and, and they get a little bit of knowledge, and they, they think, oh, man, I, I know all of this stuff. And, and then they go out, and, and they want to argue about it, right? You don't know. Let me tell you what I learned in college, right? And let me tell you. And they want to argue about it because they got this wisdom, but they don't really know what to do with it yet. And, and so they want to just force it on anybody and everybody. You're not doing that right. My professor said, and let me tell you, I, I've seen, especially in Bible college, you get some Bible students going through, and, and they get freshmen, they don't know anything, they're, they're ignorant, but when they get a little bit of knowledge, and they start learning some of these uh, little uh, interesting things, these interesting doctrines, uh, and then they bring them back to the church, and they begin to force them in the church, oh no, we got to do it this way, because this is what the professor says, we got to do it this way, and, and I've seen some sophomores in Bible college uh, just come and stir up all kinds of mess in the church because they, they have wisdom. But they don't have the love to go with that wisdom. They're puffed up. And that's the way it often is with Christians. You see, we don't have the stages of freshman and sophomore, but it's really there. Christians, they, they, they've come to faith and they're excited, but they don't know anything and, and they know they're ignorant. But then they begin to read God's word and, and they begin to, to hear teaching and, and then they learn all these wonderful things about God and about their Christian liberty, but they're ignorant about it and, and they don't know how to balance it with love. And Paul says that kind of knowledge puffs up. It's full of pride. And that's what's happening in Corinth. They're full of pride because of this new knowledge that they have. And they're puffed up. We know. Paul, we know. He says, yeah, you know. But you're not governing your knowledge with love. You're puffed up. You're proud. Now, we need to understand that uh, just because knowledge makes us puffed up, especially when we first get our hands on it, before we learn to govern it with love, that doesn't mean that knowledge is bad. That does not mean knowledge is bad. And Paul goes on here to show that knowledge is a good thing. We need knowledge. 
See, because I've seen people, they, they've come in the church and they say that they'll see things like that. They'll see, uh, you know, conflict coming in because of new knowledge and, and you got all of these doctrines. Well, we really don't need doctrine. Why are you teaching doctrine? Doctrine just divides. We need, just teach us love. Teach us uh, how to live our lives. We don't need doctrine. That's the wrong reaction. That's the wrong reaction. We need doctrine. We need to learn the deep truths of God lest we uh, fall on our faces. We've got to know God's word. We've got to know the deep doctrines of God if we want to live according to God's will. So we have to have knowledge. Notice what Paul says there. He he makes this point. Therefore, verse 4, Therefore, as to eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. That's their words again. And that there is no God but one. So they're saying this. This came to Paul in a letter. And, and so Paul is bringing this out. Now he wants to address that issue. For although there may be so-called gods, not that they're real gods, Paul says, but there's so-called gods out there in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, Uh, He's looking out across the landscape, and he says, yes, there's a temple to Artemis. There's a temple to Zeus. There's a temple to Jupiter and Mercury. There's all of these temples that people really believe in. They're going out, and they are worshiping them as gods. So they're so-called gods. But he says, yes, we know that they're not real. They're just stones. They're just... uh, Clumps of metal, that's really all they are, but people think they're real. Going on there. Uh, Yet, for us, as Christians, as the church, there is one God. We know the truth, right? We know the truth. There is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist and one lord jesus christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist so paul doesn't put them down for their knowledge he affirms their knowledge yes you're right on you're right those gods are not gods they're they're just rocks they're clumps of metal they're not gods and he gives them doctrinal knowledge there is one god the father who is the creator of all things all things are from him he created all things he is the beginning and the end he created all things and all things are for him they are for his honor and for his glory So God the Father is one, and he is the creator, and he is the end of all things. And then there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. And and he makes sure that you understand that this is the second person of the Trinity. Jesus is God. He is Lord. That word Lord in the Old Testament uh, was used in reference to, to God, Yahweh. And so Paul is making that connection. This is the Lord. This is Yahweh, Jesus Christ. There is one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things. He is the creator. He was there with God. All things were created through him. And, and without him was, was not anything created that was created, First John 
chapter, uh, or John 1, 1 through 3. He is the creator. He is the sustainer, right? Colossians chapter 1, verse 17, he holds everything together. Christ is the creator and sustainer, and he is the redeemer. Through him are all things, and through him we exist. As Christians, we exist because of the love of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, God, the second person of the Trinity, came out of heaven. He took on human flesh. He lived and died for us to redeem us and make us a kingdom for himself. So Paul doesn't say, forget doctrine. He affirms the doctrine. We need doctrine. We need to know these deep truths of God's word. We need to know that. We don't need to skip over it. We don't need to just preach love and and how to live, right? How to do life. No. We need doctrine. We need to be taught doctrine. We need to study doctrine. We need to get into the deep truths of God. And the knowledge of God needs to guide us in our Christian liberty and our Christian conduct. So we need knowledge. And Paul doesn't put that down. The Word of God doesn't put that down. We need that. We need that. So doctrine, or excuse me, so doctrine, doctrinal knowledge is important. Doctrinal knowledge is important. And we never need to downplay the importance of doctrine in the church. We need to know solid biblical doctrine. And our conduct, our liberty must be governed by doctrine. But we can't stop there, right? Our our Christian liberty must be governed by knowledge, but it also must be governed by love. Christian liberty must be governed by love. Knowledge without love defiles and destroys the weak. Knowledge without love defiles and destroys the weak. Notice what Paul says there in verse 7. However, he just gave them this this biblical doctrine, this knowledge. However, he says, not all possess this knowledge. You're saying we all have it. But Paul says, we don't. Not everybody in the church has that knowledge. It hasn't really sunk in just yet. They come to faith, but but they still haven't learned all the deep things of God. They're still learning. They're freshmen, right? They're freshmen. They they don't know the Word of God yet. They're growing, but they don't know it yet. They don't all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, as it is really offered to another god. And their conscience being weak is defiled. So they're seeing this mature Christian go into the, the temple of Artemis and, and he's eating, uh, eating meat offered to Artemis. And he says, wait, wait, I, I know Bob and man, he, he's a mature Christian. He's a deacon in the church. He's going and he, he's participating in, in idol worship. So maybe I need to go over here to Zeus and, and, and participate in worship there. Maybe, maybe. 
Yahweh's not the only God. Maybe Jesus isn't the only way, and, and maybe I need to go cover all my bases. And, and so they're going over here, and they're offering meat to this other idol. They're eating meat from this other idol, and, and they're confused, and their conscience is just it's defiled. They're struggling with this. To make sense with all of this, their conscience is defiled. Conscience is what tells us it's our moral compass, right? It tells us what's right and wrong. And, and because Bob is exercising his Christian liberty and, and eating this meat offered to an idol, Joe over here is struggling with his conscience. His conscience is defiled. But it also, it not only defiles the, the weak, but it also destroys the weak. Go on there in verses 8 through 12. Food will not condemn us to uh, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do eat, do not eat, and no better off if we do. Well, again, he's affirming food is nothing. It's just food. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Now that word stumbling block is is key word here. To be a stumbling block in Scripture means to make someone fall into sin, to stumble in their walk with the Lord. So you become a stumbling block. They're, they're stumbling over your action, your words, your, your conduct. They're stumbling over that and falling into sin because of you. So he says, be careful that your liberty doesn't become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols as it is really offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. Their walk with Christ is destroyed. You're making them fall into sin to do something that is against their conscience they're going in and they're offering this, this sacrifice or they're participating in this celebration as Zeus is really a true God and, and they're stumbling in their walk with God. You're making them sin against their conscience all because of your liberty. You're making them sin. And is that not sin itself? Look at verse 12. Thus, sinning against your brother and wounding his conscience when it was weak, you sin against Christ. If you do something to cause your brother or sister in Christ to stumble and to sin, to do something against their conscience, that's on you. Paul minces no words here. If you do that, you sin against Christ. There was a man who was, uh, had a drinking problem. I know this is an issue that we deal with here in Southern Baptist life. It's controversial, but we're going to hit it anyway. When we think about drinking in general, Southern Baptists usually say no. Uh, that's the typical stance, and that's fine. When we go to Scripture, and we dig into Scripture, uh, there's no specific Scripture that condemns drinking in general. 
If you can find it, you bring it to me, I'll change my story. But uh, uh, as far as my search of Scripture goes, uh, if you are 21 years of age, because that's the legal limit, and you want to have a drink, that's within your Christian liberty to do so. There's nothing against that. Drunkenness is a sin. If you drink to get drunk, well, then you're, you fall into sin. But if you just have a drink, according to Scripture, what I've found in Scripture, that's okay. That's within your Christian liberty, your Christian right to do so. I'm not going to judge you in that. But now, if that liberty causes someone else to sin, well, then we have a problem. There was a guy who had a drinking problem. He struggled with alcohol, and, and he would go out every weekend and sometimes during the week, and he would party with his, his buddies and, and get drunk, and, and it was about to destroy his family. Then he got invited to a revival, and God saved his soul, delivered him from his addiction, and he was doing great, right? He started going to church. He started getting involved in, in the things at the church. And, and he was doing well. He was mending his family, getting everything back together again. And they were all, the whole family was going to church together. And, and everything was great and wonderful. But then one Sunday, the pastor of this little particular church announced a new discipleship program that he was starting. And, and it went something like this. Bible, bros, and beer. Bible, bros, and beer. We're going to sit around and we're going to get in the word of God and, and we're going to grow in, in discipleship with the Lord and we're going to drink beer. Now you have this guy who's struggling with alcohol addiction and is only opportunity in this church to be discipled involves his weakness I think that preaches sin against Christ if your liberty causes your brother and sister in Christ to fall into sin you sin against God our liberty must be absolutely must be governed by love jesus says in matthew 18:6 but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin he wasn't just talking about children he was talking about his disciples adults children and all who are following him he said, if anyone causes these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned into the depths of the sea. Be careful, Christian. Don't allow your, your liberty to cause someone else to fall into sin. Knowledge with love sacrifices for the sake of the weak knowledge with love sacrifices for the sake of the weak look what paul says in that last verse verse 13 therefore if food makes my brother stumble if food makes my brother fall into sin 
I will never eat meat. Unless I make my brother sin. I'll never eat meat. If me eating meat causes my brother to fall into sin, I'll be a vegetarian, Paul says. I won't do it. Our knowledge must be governed by love. And when knowledge is governed by love, we are willing to sacrifice our liberty for the sake of our brother and our sister in Christ because we want to see them grow in Christ, not fall in their walk with Christ. Our Christian liberty must be governed by love. There are many things that are lawful for us as Christians to do. The question is, is it helpful or harmful to others? As followers of Jesus Christ, we must at times limit our liberty for the sake of others. And understand, this doesn't just have to do with, with alcohol. I, I don't want you to just, just think, oh, well, he's just talking about drinking. I don't, I don't drink, so no big deal. All right, I'm good. Well, let's talk about eating. We all eat. There's nothing sinful with having a little dessert with supper. But say you have someone who's a buddy of yours, they, they're, they're a glutton. They, they struggle with eating. They just can't, they just, they just eat, and, and that's their sin, right? They're, they're gluttonous, and they just eat, eat, eat. But they're trying to, to get things right. They're on a diet, and they're trying to, to work through that. But then you invite them over to your house, and they tell you, yeah, I'm on a great diet and, and things have been going well. I'm feeling healthy and strong and, and my walk with the Lord is, is even better because I'm not so gluttonous. And then you come in with a big old cake and say, oh, here you go. Is that not sin? They just told you they struggle with food. You're going to offer them cake? See, it can be anything. There's a lot of things that we can do as Christians that we have every right to do, every liberty, every freedom to, to do. But in all of those things, we've got to ask, all right, who am I with? Will this offend them? Will this hurt them? Will this harm them in any way? Will this, will my actions, my conduct, will it cause this person stumble, fall, is, is what I'm doing, is, is that something that's an issue with them? And if it is, well, guess what? I'll have salad for lunch. Skip the dessert. I'll have salad while I'm with this brother because that's what he's struggling with. And so I want to support him, not cause him to stumble. See, friend, we have Christian liberty to do many things. And we need to govern our liberty by knowledge, knowing the truth of God's word, knowing what's right and what's wrong according to the word of God. That's what needs to govern. We need to, to live according to God's word. So if God's word says don't do it, don't do it. If God's word says it's, it's all right to do it, well, you have the liberty to do it. But that doesn't mean it's always right to do it. That's where love comes in as a second governor. 
Because what I'm doing is this liberty, though I have every right to do it, is it an act of love for my brother and sister in Christ? So, dear, dear friends, let your Christian liberty be governed by knowledge and love. Augustine once said, Once for all, then, a short precept is given thee. This is old English. A short precept is given thee, love, and do what thou wilt. Whether thou hold thy peace through love, hold thy peace. Whether thou thou cry out through love, cry out. Whether thou correct through love, correct. Whether thou spare through love, do thou bear. Let the root of love be within. Of this root can nothing spring but what is good. Let your Christian liberty be governed by knowledge and love. Dig deep into the doctrinal truths of God's word and and love in truth. Do not demand your liberty at the expense of, of someone else, but surrender your liberty, your rights. Even as Jesus Christ surrendered his liberty, his right as God Almighty, and stepped down into this world and took on human flesh, he humbled himself For our sake, he set aside his rights as God. He became one of us to die for us so that we might live through him. How much more ought we to die to the flesh so that we might see others grow in Christ? Oh, Heavenly Father, We thank you, Lord God, that you did surrender your rights. Lord Jesus, you surrendered your real rights for our sake. You had every right to live in glory. And you surrendered those rights for our sake. And Lord, we thank you and we pray praise you for what you did for us lord let us never be arrogant in our knowledge teach us lord from your word by the power of your holy spirit teach us from your word give us wisdom and knowledge and understanding how to live in a way that is pleasing and honoring to you and also teach us love To love even as you loved us. Sacrificing our rights. For the good of others. This I pray in Christ's name. Amen.